The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. You guys remember uh, 2009, January 15th, uh, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off from LaGuardia Airport in New York. About three minutes into the flight, I think it was, they took off about 3.25 p.m. in the afternoon. It was a routine flight, quick flight from LaGuardia to Charlotte, and then from Charlotte to Seattle, Seattle, Tacoma, Washington, SeaTac Airport. About three minutes into the flight, and <clears throat> a very unfortunate flock of Canadian geese uh, happened right into the path of this uh, Airbus A320, I think it was, if I remember correctly, and uh, took out, uh, I don't know how many geese, but took out both engines in the plane. Three minutes into the flight, can you imagine? Those are very unfortunate geese, and that was an unfortunate flight to be on. I mean, you're, I mean, three minutes, you're just getting started. You're just getting in the air, and if you've ever been in an airplane before, you know that, you know, that three minutes into the flight is, is not supposed to get quiet, and it got quiet outside the plane. In fact, some of the, the passengers reported that they looked out and they could see that the engine was actually on fire. And so can you imagine if you're one of the passengers in that flight sitting there and you, like, you hear something, you don't know what's going on, the engine stopped, somebody's saying there's, there's fire outside the plane. Like you're thinking like things are really, really bad. The only people who knew exactly how bad it was with the five crew members that were in the cockpit because they knew they had lost both engines and they knew that usually when that happens people are going to die and yet this crew who was well trained captain by captain sully sully sullenberger uh his real name is chelsea i think chelsea not chelsea chesley uh, which is, that explains why he goes by Sully, Captain Sully Sullenberger. He uh, happened to be an, uh, an air flight emergency expert, and he gets his troops together in calm, and they bring the flight down in the middle of the Hudson River with no fatalities whatsoever. I think there were two, uh, I think there were five, only five injuries, two serious three minor injuries in the whole as the plane lands in the Hudson River. And he was heralded and his whole his whole crew, rightly so, as heroes. Because in the midst of panic, in the midst of impending doom, in the midst of possible or almost certain fatalities, because what the, the people who gave who, who gave them medals, the, the, the authority at the time said that it was very unusual to see no casualties erupt from a landing, an emergency like that, a landing like that. In the midst of fire, in the midst of crisis, in the midst of things going down, he kept his cool, his crew kept their crew, their cool, and landed them safely in the middle of the Hudson. We all admire men or women who in the midst of doom, in the midst of crisis, in the midst of trouble, are able to keep their cool. There's a story as a sports guy. Some of you guys won't track with this, but as a sports guy, I love the story. As Super Bowl and uh, I can't remember which Super Bowl it was now. Twenty something. And uh, you guys will be able to tell me 
uh, the, the 49ers were facing the Cincinnati Bengals. And I think there were like four minutes left in the game. And they were, Cincinnati had just gone up and, and the Niners were down. And it's stressful. It's the end of the game. This is it. You either score here or you go home. And the whole team who's full of stress, the crowd is going crazy, millions and millions and tens of millions of people at home watching, and they get in, they get in the huddle, and Joe Montana walks into the huddle. And he, you're getting ready to like, wait and see, what's he going to say? What, what play is he going to call? Everybody's psyched up, and he walks into the huddle, and he says, hey, uh, did you look over there? Is that John Candy in the stands? John Kenny was a big comedian at the time. Everybody looks over there. They laugh. He loosens the team up. They go down, score, win the touchdown. He's MVP. They, they win the Super Bowl, win the touchdown. They score the touchdown. When he wins the MVP, they win the Super Bowl and go home. We admire somebody who's able to look down the barrel whenever the chips are down, whenever the, the shrapnel is flying, the explosions are going around, and they're to keep their cool. We're all looking for a hero. We're all looking for a man that we can follow we're all looking for somebody who can be in charge, that we can trust, to know that when the, 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 the bullets are flying, they are in control. That's why we're taking 16 weeks between now and Easter, the 16 weeks between now and Easter, and we're looking at the 16 chapters of the book of Mark. Because what we'll see as we study Jesus over the next four months is that Jesus is a man that we can follow. He's a king that we can serve, and he's a God we can worship. He's a man who's worth following. He's a king who is worth serving, and he's a God who is worth worshiping. I don't, I don't know what your church background is. I, I grew up in church, and so I, I came away with this kind of funny picture of Jesus. Uh, maybe you guys had this, maybe you had a church background and maybe you didn't, but I had this picture of Jesus like um, he's this dude who's walking around in a bathrobe, apparently because that's what they wore, because all our skits everybody's wearing bathrobes or, or something like that or a sheet around them. Is it a guy walking around in a sheet or a bathrobe um, and he's got this kind of uh, this kind of creepy smile on his face. You know what I'm saying? Like the guy who's like smiling all the time and you don't know why he's smiling. And he's like, look at this smile. And he's kind of floating around. Like maybe holding his hands like this and floating around like this. Maybe a halo over his head. Um, and for some reason, he's carrying a lamb around his neck all the time. I don't know why. There's a picture of Jesus like carrying around this lamb, smiling with his hands, and he's like floating around. And, and by the way, he's like blonde hair and blue eyed. Like, like he looks like, a, like somebody off the cover of GQ. He doesn't look at all like a Jew would have looked like in the, the first century BC. And he's kind of floating around creepily. And I'm like, who can relate to this guy? I don't know. Like, I know I'm supposed to worship him. I know he's the one that created the, the heavens and the earth, and he came to earth to save us. I really appreciated that, but I can't relate to this dude who's like floating around like this, smiling creepily. Hello, I'm Jesus. Hello. Hello. I call it the felt boardification of the Bible. Anybody grew up in church and you had the felt boards? Maybe you didn't. You had the, the felt boards, and so you go to Sunday school class and you have a felt board, and the teacher's going to teach you a story, and so they, they have uh, like these paper cutouts, and the back of the paper is felt. 
So they like take the characters and they put them up on the felt board, and so it's supposed to help us like follow along with them. I'm not saying anything bad about felt board, but they're all like nice cartoon characters, like the Jesus like floating like this, and then there's like the man he heals, and or there might be the story of Jonah, and you have the whale, and then you have Jonah kind of fits inside the whale, and. He didn't do anything. I just blamed Hudson. So, but you you have you have the nice, neat, like felt board stories, and, and and it's difficult to relate to that. But but the Bible was very real, and Jesus was a real man who really lived. We just celebrated his birth. He was really born. It wasn't a nice, neat birth. It doesn't say like he was a baby who didn't cry. So somewhere in the middle of the Middle East, in Palestine, there was a woman, a girl, in the middle of a probably like, more like a cave, and there's animals around, and there's hay or straw, and she gives birth, which is not, I've seen it firsthand. It is not a beautiful, it's beautiful, but it's not a beautiful thing. It's a bloody, fluidy mess that just kind of erupts everywhere. Jesus erupted out of his mother in the middle of a cave. It was messy and it was dirty. And he grew up and he was a boy. I have a three-year-old boy. And he is messy and he is dirty. He is, we're trying to, we're trying to close the deal right now on the, on the potty training thing. And, and, but he, he poops in his pants. Jesus probably pooped in his pants. Jesus didn't like, he, 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 he ate, he spat, he, he may have gotten a cold, we don't know. He, I, I have had this like kind of cold thing rock in the past couple weeks. He probably had to blow his nose at times. He, he had boogers, he may have picked his boogers. I don't know, it doesn't say he didn't do everything, he did everything perfect and nice and neat and mannerly. We don't know, but Jesus was a real boy and a real person. And he grew up. Palestine, Palestine. I'm sorry, I got threw myself off on the booger thing. <laughs> but what's your impression of Jesus? What was your impression of Jesus kind of growing up or maybe your past? Was it influenced by the, the pictures of Jesus walking around like this and the halo and the soft and the uh, Thomas Kincaid painter of light copyright and everything's like soft and gleamy and glowy all the time? Or, or, or was it like more like a felt board kind of thing? Was it somebody you couldn't relate to? Was it somebody who was more like a, a fable character like, like, uh, like uh, Mother Hubbard or, you know, what? I don't know. <laughs> to you, was it somebody more like that? Did you have any impression at all? What's your impression now of Jesus? Who is he? Who was he? Who is he to you? Let's look at Mark chapter 1 today. And we have to fly through this because um, I took 11 and a half minutes with my opening. Uh, but we also have to fly through because there's a, there's a lot happening in this chapter. And so what we're going to do as we look at Mark, this this. Uh, the next 16 weeks. There's no way we're going to cover it like we did Ephesians, and everybody says thank you. We're going to take kind of big picture, one chapter at a time each week. So this week we'll be in chapter in chapter one. Next week we'll be in chapter two. So it'd be encouraging for you guys to kind of read it during the week. Read Mark chapter one. Read Mark chapter two this coming week so you kind of know where we're tracking. Mark was uh, a guy named John Mark. He was a early disciple, uh, early believer in Jesus Christ. He traveled uh, with Paul. He traveled with Peter. In fact, that's where we believe that he wrote the book. This book from this letter is from hanging out with Peter, who happened to see Jesus firsthand. He was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And Mark writes this book. 
I think he wrote it somewhere in the area of Rome, Italy, somewhere in that area. And it happened uh, somewhere in the decade of 50 to 60 AD, which he would have been writing in a period of time uh, when Nero was emperor, if, we, if we're correct. And uh, that means that he was writing to a group of people in Italy, in Rome, who are believers, who see Nero had some... He had some problems. Nero had some uh, mistakes that he had caused and hadn't caused and things were going bad and there was a, a fire in Rome. And the legend is that Nero started it or had people started it. We don't really know for certain. But afterwards, people were very angry. They thought Nero had started it. Nero said, well, I gotta find somebody that's gonna take the blame. So I'm not gonna take the blame for this. And so he started blaming the Christians. And in order to try to like try to trump up the people against Christians, he started arresting them, bringing them in, and he would play. He would have sport with them. He 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 would take them and uh, put uh, like a beast hide on them and throw them in the middle of the Colosseum with a lion or with a, a, a beast that would attack them and kill them and eat them. And they would watch it like it was a spectacle. That they're they're in, according to legend, he would take some Christians and he would put them on post in his garden and he would light them like torches in the middle of the night. All you, the only requirement for you getting that kind of treatment was just being a Christian believing in Jesus Christ. And so Mark is writing to a group of people who have impending death upon their door. Just for being a Christian, just for being a believer. At any given time they could be arrested, they could be turned over just at the whim of Nero just because they happened to worship Jesus Christ. And so Paul, Mark Mark is writing to this group of believers so they can know more about this Jesus, who they love and who they serve. Let's start out Mark 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. The word gospel is a very Christian word in America. Obviously, when we say gospel, you think about church, or I don't know, whatever it is that you picture. You might picture the Bible or the story of Jesus, but gospel was a word that originated way before Christians, and it, it, was, it was the word that had to do with, it, it usually had to do with when a when a ruler would come to power, when he would come of age or would have a birthday, it would, it would be time to party in the kingdom. And he would send out messengers, evangelists out into the countryside to go into every town and every village and to announce the gospel, the good news that the emperor is of age or he has been, he has been made emperor or, or today is his birthday and so we're going to take today off, we're going to celebrate it with good news of something that had happened in the past. And so when Mark starts out writing to the, the, the believers in Rome and around the area of Rome and everybody else who the, uh, this letter was circulated to, he says the beginning of the good news, the joyful tidings. That's really what it meant to them when they heard the word gospel. It meant joyful tidings, the beginning of the joyful tidings of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I have news to tell you of something that has happened. It's not about something that I'm asking you to do. It's not something about requirements. It's not calling you to live a different life, though there is a call. We're going to see it today. But that's not the, the crux of the story. The crux of the story is a proclamation of who Jesus is and what he has done. The fact that they are joyful, glad, amazing tidings for you and for me. The beginning of the joyful tidings of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Look down at verse 9 through 13. 
in those days, uh, so before this, I'll just clue you on what happened. He starts off and he says, John the Baptist came up and he started proclaiming that people needed to come and repent. He was out in the wilderness and the whole region, Jerusalem, Judea, all of it was going out repenting of their sins before John. So there's this whole kind of like spiritual revival going on before Jesus shows up. And then in those days, Jesus, that's how he enters into this. So no, no little cute little baby Jesus in the manger. It doesn't start out like Luke does. It doesn't give us his background like Matthew does. It just starts off, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And so whenever he was baptized, it's a, it's a, it's a picture to us of how, um, of how humble he came that Jesus was God, but yet he came as a man. To have another man baptize him, and baptism showed repentance. What did Jesus have to repent of? Nothing. He was perfect. He had not sinned. And yet he submitted himself to John to be baptized because he was, it was a picture of how he was coming. To come and bear our sin and judgment that was due to us. And was baptized by John and the in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So right off the bat we get a picture that Jesus wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a prophet. Isn't it interesting how everybody has to figure out who Jesus is and what he did? No matter who you are, no matter what you believe, no matter what part of the world you come from, Jesus is this enigmatic figure in history that you have to figure out who, who he was because you can't get over him. There are many leaders that come to power that we think are going to be a big deal and a few years later it's not that big a deal, right? There's tons of leaders who have been very influential and 10, 20, 50 years later we've forgotten their names. We don't think about them anymore. One day, Calvin Coolidge was one of the most powerful men in the world. When was the last time you thought about Calvin Coolidge? Have you had to think about, like, what does he mean to you? No. But Jesus Christ, maybe you have our mind, but Jesus Christ, everybody has to figure out who he was. Because what he said, the effect that he had, and what Christians say about him, and what he said about himself, you cannot ignore him. Think about it. He is, he has billions of followers who didn't just swear that he had good teachings, but worship him as God. And that's what is that's what God the Father is saying right now. That's what John Mark is saying as he writes to us in this gospel. He's saying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Right off the bat, he tells us Jesus is God. And when God comes on the scene, when Jesus comes on the scene, he starts to ruffle feathers. He starts to create ripples. He starts to disturb people. And the Spirit immediately, verse 12, drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So he, he was tempted by Satan. 
So it's queuing up, number one, it says that he was baptized, so he was humble. Then it was saying that he uh, was the son of God himself, so it's saying that God himself has come as man on some kind of a mission. And then you see immediately, you see it's a mission where he's engaging Satan. He's saying that there's an enemy, and he's engaging him right off the bat. Driven into the wilderness, being tempted by Satan. And then just this is kind of an interesting tidbit, uh, most commentators, when you see the wording, when he says he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him, remember what I said that Nero was doing to the believers? He would put like a sheepskin or a goat skin on them, something like that, throw them out to the, into the Colosseum, and what was chasing them around? Wild animals. So this picture that as you are facing, as this, these believers in Rome were facing possible impending death, a lot of animals to say, hey, you're not the only one. Jesus was there. That's one of the beautiful stories of the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, became man, became humble like you and me, so that he would taste what you and I taste. He would experience down days. He experienced death. He saw sadness. He saw and felt sickness. He was moved and grieved by it. Look at verse 14 now. This is the passage that Kramer read for us. Now, after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. What is the gospel? What is the good news, the joyful tidings, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's declaring the fact that he is king. And God the king has come and he's returning to set things right. I know I've, I've mentioned this to you guys before and I know most of you guys aren't geeked up like I am. But, uh, but there's the, 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 the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. And I just just watching it, I, I, every, every uh, between Christmas and New Year's is a good break to watch some movies. And so everyone I'll either watch... Um, I'll either watch Star, the Star Wars trilogy, the, the real one, not the other one. I watched the Star Wars trilogy. There's not six movies. There's three, and then there's three, you know, I don't know what they are. Uh, that came on, on later, but the Star Wars movies or the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And the last movie, the last book, anybody know what it's called? The Return of the King. He comes to the city of Gondor. If you're not a geek, just stick with me on this because there's a big picture of this. But he comes to the city of Gondor, which has been without a king. And the, the, the tree, which is the symbol of the king, is dead and withered. The city is a, a shell of its former self. It used to be a place of, of learning and valor and courage where, where the, 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 the best of mankind was, was shown. There was a, a beautiful city, a beautiful society that flourished under the lordship of the king. But when the king was gone, everything slowly started to die away and to crumble. And it's just a, it's just a shell of its former self. But the king is going to come back and he's going to return to the throne. And whenever he does, he's going to set things right. The enemy is going to be defeated. He's going to sit on the throne. And he's a man of war. He's also a man of peace. He's a man of learning. He's a man of compassion. He's a man of, the, of authority, but he's also tender and loving to people. The king is coming and he's going to set things right. And that's what Jesus Christ is declaring. When he comes on the scene, he says, the king is coming back. 
and all that you see is broken and all that you see is marred and everything that you see is messed, that's messed up. I am coming to set things right. I am, I'm, he's a man of authority and he's also a man of tenderness. He's a man of war to vanquish the enemies, but he's a man of peace to set up a peaceable kingdom that under his rule and his reign. He's a man of passion and he's also a man of learning. He's a man of music and joy and mirth, but yet he's also serious. He's everything that we desire for a leader and a great man to be. Every leader that you and I have discovered, every great sports figure that you and I have idolized, every single sports, every single sports star, every single celebrity. Why do you? Why, what do people thought? Why do you know who is pregnant right now? That that's a celebrity. Why do you know who Jennifer Aniston is dating or married to right now? Why do you and I know that? Because we're looking for somebody great that we can that we can admire and put our trust in. That there's something in us that's longing for somebody who, who's, why, why, do, why do I, why do I play stinking stupid fantasy football? Well, why do I love to watch Peyton Manning throw a ball on a field to other men? Why do I watch Tom Brady and why do I sit, sit with Kramer and have inane conversations about this big, is Big Ben worthy to be a top 10 quarterback? Is Joe Flacco a top 10 quarterback in the NFL right now? Why do I want to talk about that? Because I have Admire greatness, and I want to. I want to. I want to know greatness and see it. I want to. I want to put my trust. I want to examine. I want, I want there to be somebody great who is worth respecting and idolizing, and that's who Jesus is. The King is returning. He came back to set things right. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Inherit in the proclamation that the king is returning and the kingdom has come is a is inherit is that is is an acknowledgement by every single person that he's addressing that if he's the king then what does that mean about you and me? It means that I'm not. It means that you're not. That means whatever it is that you and I worship, whatever it is you and I put our trust in, whatever it is that you and I are serving is not a worthy king. And we need to change our allegiance from ourselves, or whatever it is we put our faith and trust in and put it into him to repent and to say, I have put, I have put my allegiance to a false king and I need to move it and shift it to the true and real king. Verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, listen to this, listen to the gall of this. I, I, uh, I, I I'll be honest with you, as in beginning to plant a church, uh, my coaches wanted to be, me to be very, um, very forward in approaching people to say, hey, come be a part of our church. And frankly, that's not just a part of my nature. I'm not really good at that. Um, because frankly, because it, it, if, if I was talking to somebody that I wanted to come and join our team and be a part of our church or somebody who's not a part now and I talk to them, I, I don't, just be honest, I don't want to tell them to come and be a part of our church because I'm afraid that something's going to go wrong and they're going to blame me for it. 
They're going to come and they're going to regret, regret coming and I'm going to be the one to blame. And so early on as we were gathering a team, I told people, I, I appreciate that Jonathan uh, and Kate were the first family to sign on. And I, frankly, I, I thought you should have investigated me a little bit more and kind of figured out, gone a little bit deeper into who I was and what we were doing. But it was sort of like, hey, we're in. And, and uh, in true Jonathan style, he said, uh, this isn't anything about you. Uh, it's just a, a don't take, don't let this go to your head. I believe was his wording. Don't let this go to your head. This is not about you. God told us to come, and that's why we're coming. And frankly, I enjoyed that because then at, if a year, two years down the road, things go bad, he doesn't say, hey, but you forced me to come. I say, no, it was your choice. You came on your own. <laughs> but Jesus had the gall to walk up into these two men who were minding their own business, doing their deal. They were fishing. They were doing their job. So it's like you and your computer, you sitting in front of your students, you and your bank, you doing whatever it is that David does all day. I have no idea what you do. Sit at your computer, take people out to lunch. I don't know. I think money just pours, pours into David. He just like shows, shows up once a week to work and unlocks the door. And like, it's like people have been sticking money in through a slot. That's what I, that's what I picture Dave does. I don't know. <laughs> so people have tried to explain what a financial advisor does. And it, I, I don't know. But it says like money just flows through from one side to him and he takes some of it as it flows along. But... <laughs> But whatever it is that you do, you're doing your job every day. And, and this man walks up to you. We don't know if they'd ever met him before. They may have heard him teach. We don't know. But if man walks to them and says, hey, come follow me. Drop whatever you're doing. I'm not going to come back for you in an hour. I'm not saying give your two weeks notice. I'm saying come follow me. imagine being confronted with that? You're at Fresh Brood or doing your schoolwork or teaching students or litigating. You're in court. A man walks up to you and says, hey, come follow me. Drop your pencil, drop your paper, drop your deal because the king has come when the king has needed you. You follow. The details don't matter. But you, as he walks up to you, you're, you're faced with a decision. Simon and Andrew were faced with a decision as he walked up to them. And he said, come, follow me. He said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So not only did he say, hey, come follow me, he told them, I have a plan for you that's different than what your plan was. I don't know what your five-year plan was, your 10-year plan was. I don't know what you plan to do for dinner tonight. I don't know what you plan to do with your career. I don't know where you plan to go to school. I don't know what you plan, when you plan to have kids or when you plan to do this, when you plan to move. But I come and I say, follow me. And I tell you, I've got you. I've already decided. It's different than what you planned. It's probably not what you plan to do today, Simon and Andrew. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, immediately they left their nets and followed him. When Jesus comes and he addresses you, there's an urgency. Verse 19. 
And going on, going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who later on we're going to learn that they had the nickname the Sons of Thunder. Wouldn't that be an awesome nickname to have? You and your brother, like people called you the Sons of Thunder? Like, like I didn't give myself that nickname, like somebody else called me that? Why do you think they were called the Sons of Thunder? It wasn't because they were like... like sipping coffee and reading a book over in the corner, that's because they were, they were raising some rabble. They were hard and scruff. We don't know what happened, but they, they were hard, scruff. They were, you knew when they walked into the room and you knew when they left. They were the sons of thunder. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately, you're going to see that word a lot in the book of Mark, and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. See, when Jesus comes, he disturbs people. In the presence of Jesus, men are disturbed and they're called to leave their life and to follow him. Why? Because the king has come. And he's a man who is worth following. And he's a king who is worth serving. And he is a God who is worthy to be worshipped. When Jesus comes, men are disturbed and they're called to leave their life and to follow him. The call is urgent and immediate. There's another story where uh, a disciple comes, a potential disciple comes along and tells Jesus, I would, I would like to follow you, but I need to go home. There's some stuff I need to take care of. And this legitimate stuff. Like, like one guy says, like, I got to go get married. This is a legitimate good thing. Like God said to go get married, right? It's a good thing to happen. I need to go take care of my mom. I need to go tell them goodbye. And Jesus says, no. If I've called you and told you to come, then you come now. When Jesus calls, there's an immediate scene and an urgency to the call. Why? Because it's the king. There's another show I watch. I know I'm geeky. It's called The West Wing. Um, and I love it because I love politics and like it, the, and the writing is amazing. It, it's very frustrating for me to watch it because people can't talk like that for real because they don't feel, we don't have script writers and, um, and it's, it's just really amazing dialogue back and forth. But one of the themes through the whole show is that when the, the president calls you, you might be an attorney that's making bank. You might be a successful executive. You might be doing really well, but when the president calls you and says, I want you to come and help me, you don't say no. And when you're working for him, and it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and you get a beat, and it says that it's the special code that says the president, you don't say, I'll see you in the morning. I got to get my tight eight hours. You go there. Because the president is there's an emergency and immediacy to the call. And the call, first of all, the call is urgent and immediate. Secondly, the call is centered around a master-servant relationship. So when Jesus calls him to come with him, 
He doesn't call them as buddies, like saying, hey, let's form a band, let's start touring. He's inherent is it, in it is a discipleship relationship. He said, I'm the master, I'm the king, I've showed up and I'm calling you to come with me. And if you come with me, then you're recognizing that I'm the king, I'm the master, and you have need to learn from me. And here in the call is a master-servant relationship. When they dropped their nets and they followed him, they didn't follow him, they didn't have equal footing. It wasn't a committee deciding what they were going to do with this new ministry. It was them following somebody else, following the king who had come. The call is urgent and immediately. The call is a master-servant relationship, and the call comes with a mission. He doesn't say, hey, come follow me, and uh, you, you know, come follow me for a year or two, and then I'm going to send you back, and you'll have your training, and you can go back to your life. He says, come, come to me, follow me, I have a mission for you. You think that your, your life is going to be involved in fishing every day and making some money for your family and hopefully working up to get a bigger boat and more servants and more nets and you're going to have a fishing empire and you're going to open uh, cap, some Captain D's and sell it and you're going to do it for sheep, make a lot of money. Maybe that's your plan. But my plan comes with a mission for your life. He says, come with me and I'll make you fishers of men. Because when you come to Jesus, the calling is immediate and urgent. The calling is to a master-servant relationship. And the calling is for us to join him on his mission. I don't know what you picture. I mentioned this last week. I don't know what you picture for 2014 for you. I don't know what plans you have of what jobs you're going to take or whether you're going to have kids or uh, whether you're going to pursue more education or whether you're going to do this or do that. I don't know what your plans are. But here's the truth, that God has a plan for you to join his mission in 2014 and 2015 and 2016. And if you, have joined, if you are joining him in a master-servant relationship, then his mission for you comes before everything else. So instead of you filtering through, like, what am I going to do with my life and who am I going to marry and who am I going to divorce and why are we going to have kids and am I going to take that job? Am I going to take this job? Am I going to move here or move there? The filter that it goes through isn't your want and your desires anymore. The filter, if you are a Christian, the filter that it goes through is the mission that Jesus Christ has called you to be on, to join him in, to declare that the king has come and he's setting things right and that we should repent of our old life and leave it and come and follow him. The call is urgent and immediate. The call is centered around a master-servant relationship. The call comes with a mission, and the call requires a, res a radical response of obedience. The call requires a response of radical obedience. The, ca the call requires a response of radical obedience. There's no such thing as a Christian who's sort of a tepid, lukewarm Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who gives God 50% of his life and say, or gives God his life in the future or next week or tomorrow. Like, like we all like start our New Year's resolutions and we're like, oh, okay, like New Year's Day comes. We're like, well, today's a holiday. I'm not going to start like my new diet 
today. I'll start it tomorrow. And then you're like, no, I'll, I'll start. We may as well start the new, the new week. So I'll start it on the 6th. And the 6th comes, and you wake up, and you get to lunch, and you forgot you're supposed to start. So well, I'll, you, know, you keep pushing it back. And so like your New Year's resolution, I'll do it later. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do that. Like me, with, with like we've cleaned out that stinking garage two times in the past 18 months. And it is stacked up again. And I know I need to clean out the garage. I know I need to clean out the garage. It's pending. But I'm like, we'll do that uh, when the weather warms up. And then it's, it's like, it's too hot to do it. I'll do it later on. Or it's too busy this week. I'll do it later. There's no such thing as like for a believer in Christ to put off obedience to him at some time in the future. But the king has come. And he did come. It requires a response of radical obedience to him. Because look at this. We'll be done. Verse 21. So he's called this, these four, four uh, disciples with him. And they went into Capernaum entered on the Sabbath, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they, the people that were listening in the synagogue, so like a church like this, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not the scribes. And immediately, I don't have this on the screen, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him, can you imagine like this church service? That'd be kind of crazy. He tells him to come out, convulsing and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed. So they questioned among them, saying, saying, who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And his fame spread. He goes to Peter's house, and he, he has compassion upon Peter's mother-in-law, and he heals her, and then she serves them. And, and then the next thing you know, they have dinner, and there's a knock on the door, and they open the door, and the whole city has come, and is camped outside, and they brought all, brought all their people who were sick and afflicted and needed help. They brought them all there. When Jesus comes, he disturbs the status quo because the authority has come. The one who has authority has come. The king has come. And whenever he comes in his presence, men are disturbed. And they are called to leave their life and to follow him. The calling is urgent. The calling is to a master-servant relationship. The calling requires radical obedience. And the call comes with a mission. When Megan and I, we took a trip to uh, Colorado. And it was a lot of fun. We stayed in Denver. and uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Colorado, but it's a really cool state. You can, you have, you have, you, if you go just, just east, it's like plains. It's like Kansas. There's like nothing. Like There's nothing between there and I don't, I don't know. Like I, I feel like there's nothing between there and maybe Maryland. It's just like nothing, just like fields. And, and, and corn, like all through that area. And you go south and you have a Colorado Spring. There's these amazing like rock formations and really cool like mountainous kind of terrain. You, you, go, you go northwest and you the rocky start, like right at the edge of Denver. And they just go straight up into the sky. It's amazing. And Meg and I went up into this place called uh, Rocky Mountain National Park beside Estes. Uh, Estes Park is a little city, a little, little town. And we, we traveled up and then they had this road that's closed from, uh, 
from the middle of September through May. Middle of September through May because you can't travel it because it goes so high. The snow goes so high. The ice is so bad. We went early September. It's like one of the last times you could go up there. As we traveled up this this path in a car, like it had the like the temperature, the temperature dropped 40 degrees from the bottom of the mountain to the top. And when we got to the top, we crossed this place and it had a sign that said it was the Continental Divide. You guys know what the Continental Divide is? It's a high point in the, in the west, down the Rockies, down the middle of the continent, that, that is a dividing point in the country. And everywhere on the east side of the Continental Divide, the rivers run east, and they somehow end up in the Atlantic or the Gulf of Mexico. And if you have a river that's on the west of that, it flows into the Pacific Ocean. It's the Continental Divide. It divides the continent one side. Everything rolls this way, or everything rolls this way. And Jesus is the Continental Divide of the world. And when you see him for who he is, when you meet him as we're going to meet him, hopefully afresh and anew over the next 16 weeks, and you hear what he has to say, and you recognize that he is the king who has come to make things right, that he, then, and he is a leader who's worth following, he's a king who's worth serving, and he's a God who's worth worshiping, he divides life for you. And you have to decide, I'm on this side, I'm on this side. There's no middle ground. He doesn't allow for that. There's no, he was a good teacher, and I'm going to follow his teachings. There's no, I'm going to follow him and give him my whole life tomorrow or next week. There's only a urgent and radical and immediate response whenever he walks up to you. And you're collecting your money at your door, or you're teaching students, or you're at your bank, or you're doing whatever you're doing, and he says, follow me. The only real response you can make is to drop your nets and to follow him. He's the king who came back to make everything right. Just like Captain Sully in that cockpit when everything was going wrong around him, they were getting ready to crash and people were almost assuredly going to die. He kept his cool. He piled them in safely. Jesus Christ came to our darkness set things right. And one day he'll return again and make everything right again. He will complete the work that he's begun. And we get to join him in that mission. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.